6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 18 through 25. Well, we're going to enter the Word of God, and we never do that without prayer. So let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God that has gone to such extremes on our behalf. We do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would open your word to our lives and open our hearts to your word, that in all these things we may grow in grace and the knowledge of our coming King, and that we might be more effective stewards of the opportunities that you place before us in the days ahead. As we commit the coming hour and ourselves into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Well, we are in the epistle to the Colossians, a rather remarkable epistle that for many reasons I won't recount here, uh, again, uh, the, the, is so relevant to our day-to-day. In fact, it's startling to realize how uniquely tailored this instruction from Paul uh, fits the challenges that we face here today. So uh, in here we're going to explore four motives, uh, or I should say we have in the previous session uh, uh, covered the grace of Christ, how God chose them, how God set them apart, how he loves them, and how he's forgiven them. That was the buildup that's leading up to the session that we're in here. The outline of the total study, of course, is in three major segments. The first is doctrine, and it's Christ's preeminence declared. And Paul emphasizes the preeminence of Christ to refute all these heresies and false teachings that had arisen there and that are prevalent in our world today. And then the next segment was Christ's preeminence defended uh, in chapter 2. We're in chapter 3. And uh, the first two chapters being doctrinal, and the last two chapters being the application of those doctrines. But we'll be picking up some insights as we go uh, through this area here. And in the last segment, we were in the first half of chapter 3. We're going to explore the second half of chapter 3 in the time allotted here. But let's back up a little bit and take a look at ourselves It's astonishing to look at our society and realize how it's fractionating, how families are broken. Uh, It was the first institution on the earth was the home in in Genesis 2. And it's clear if you do any homework at all that our society has become incredibly dysfunctional. Our post-war generation, 80% grew up in a family with two biological parents who were married to each other. That was a very old-fashioned idea these days, but that's the way it was following World War II, since 1980, less than 50% expect to spend their entire childhood in an intact family. And obviously I'm using research here that relates to the United States. 
I'm sure that you can't possibly be in the shambles that we are in the colonies. So, I, uh, an increasing number of children will experience family breakup two or even three times during childhood. Scientific evidence demonstrates that children in disrupted families do worse than those in intact families. They're six times more likely to be poor. They're 22% uh, uh, of one-parent families will experience poverty during childhood for seven years or more versus 2% of children in two-parent families. It's just a reality. Children of single-parent families are three times as likely to have emotional and behavioral problems. More likely to drop out of high school, get pregnant as teenagers, abuse drugs, and be in trouble with the law. And also higher risk for physical or sexual abuse. Less likely to be successful as adults, especially in love and in work. Harder time achieving intimacy in a relationship, forming a stable marriage, or even holding a steady job. That's the reality. Teen suicide rate has tripled. Juvenile crime has increased and become more violent. School performance has continued to decline. Welfare dependency tends to be passed on from one generation to the next. Daughters of single parents are 53% more likely to marry as teenagers. 111% more likely to have children as teenagers. 164% more likely to have premarital birth. And 92% more likely to dissolve their own marriages. Uh, problems since the 1960s. Since the, after the Supreme Court outlawed mentioning God in schools, that was the big turning point, 62 and 63, taking Bible reading out of the schools, taking prayer out of the schools. And uh, divorce uh, uh, was roughly 10 in 1,000, then sudden growth in 1979, using those numbers to, 20, to more than double uh, per 1,000. Uh, 23 per thousand. In 74, uh, divorce exceeds death as the leading cause of family breakup. In 1990, one out of four women had a child while unmarried. Half of all marriages now end in divorce. And by the way, that statistic is true of Christian families as well as secular families, which tells you that there is something fundamentally wrong. Remarried couples are more likely to break up than couples in first marriage. It's about 56% actually. One in four children will eventually enter a step family. Of course, Hollywood celebrates divorce and unwed motherhood. And federal policy celebrates social and sexual variances. We're going to get into some surprises on that in a minute. Fewer than half of all adult Americans today regard the idea of sacrifice for others as a positive moral value. The adult quest for freedom, independence, and choice in family relationships conflicts with a child's developmental needs for stability, constancy, harmony, and permanence in family life. Each divorce is the death of a small civilization. It inflicts wounds that will never heal. Survey after survey demonstrates that Americans are less inclined than they were a generation ago to value sexual fidelity, lifelong marriage, and parenthood as a worthwhile personal goals. It's a whole value system that's dysfunctional. You know, the scripture regards this as a prophetic sign. Matthew 24, 12, the love of many Will grow cold. And that word love, by the way, is agape. Will grow, many will grow cold. It's the most basic form in the family. Heterosexuals reproduce, homosexuals recruit. God's judgment as creator, we're going to talk about uh, a bit here. Family serves as a seedbed for virtues. This is the first generation in the nation's history to do worse psychologically, socially, and economically than its parents. 
And of course, we have briefing packages on this being faithful in the faithless world. And I encourage you to look at our expository commentaries, particularly of Ephesians and some others on this. Is your home a refuge or a battleground is the question. Don't need a raising of hands. <laughs> There's a cycle that may startle you, but to think through here. You see, our government is now the purveyor of immorality. That may come as a shock. Why are we surprised? Governments have always loved crises. They provide a rationale for increased budgets and bureaucracies and subjugating the population. Crises do. In fact, most new dictators will create external crises in order to consolidate their internal powers. So military crises have always served that. The great discovery in America has been that they learned long ago that social crises serve just as well as military ones for the same ends. And there's one insight that may supply a key missing link. Immorality results in social crises. Is it any surprise to learn that governments have an enormous incentive to promote immorality? Let me diagram that for you. Governments have always enjoyed military crises because they increase budgets and provide excuses to increase power. In modern times, social crises work just as well as military ones, if not more. And they increase budgets, create bureaucracies, create departments that whatever problem they're there to solve is going to get bigger because that justifies the department, whatever segment you want to use. The thing to realize is that social crises are brought about by immorality. So why are we surprised that there's an incentive for governments that may be subversive, I mean, uh, under the cover, or it might be quite overt, but in any case, they promote immorality. And that, of course, feeds on itself right around the way, because that more immorality, more social crises, more social crises, more budgets, and, and on it goes. Okay, let's shift into the text that we were ultimately going to target here. That was by a preamble. There's simple, very simple rules laid out by Paul in his epistle to the Colossians. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. I know you girls are very familiar with Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. You're tired of hearing that from your husbands. But uh, this is, there's one rule for wives. There's also going to be one rule for husbands. We'll get to that in a minute. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. There's nothing argumentative about either one of these things. One rule for wives, one rule for husbands. Why can't we keep that? It's, uh, why can't we simply follow them? And uh, this is obviously the parallel passage to Ephesians 5. And a root of bitterness in a home can poison the marriage relationship and, of course, give Satan a, a, a foothold. And there's much in the scripture on that topic. That's why in Ephesians, Paul advised, let not the sun go down on your wrath. It's a wise policy to follow if you want to have a happy home. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. It's also included, the Lord wrote it with his finger in stone in a thing called Ten Commandments, right? So there's also one rule for children. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandment commitment with a promise. In, in Exodus 20, verse 12, that's old news for most of you. Lack of obedience of children is a sign of moral decay in a nation. That's in Isaiah chapter 3. That is a, a measure you can use to see the health of a nation. 
is the obedience of the children. Interesting. Children who do not obey their parents when young will not obey their parents when older. No surprise. Straightforward. And for the most part, children do not create problems. They reveal them. You did you know insanity is hereditary? We get it from our children, right? Okay. A commitment to honesty and devotion. You know, one of the biggest shocks I've had going from 30 years in the corporate boardrooms. I was, uh, I, I've served on 12 public boards. I was chairman and CEO of four, uh, six different publicly traded companies. Going from that to professional Christianity, publishing and writing and so forth, the last 20 years. First 30 years was an executive. The last 20 has been uh, as a writer and speaker. Is the evaporation of integrity. The sanctity of a commitment. And uh, we've lost the concept of the sanctity of commitment in our marriages and in our businesses. And it's astonishing to see the deterioration of this same concept in the corporate boardrooms also. It was very different back when I was active in that. They didn't have the Enrons and what have you in those days. They may have had problems, but not to the extent they have today. It's astonishing. We have a society that's completely severed any apparent connection between character and destiny. It used to be that if you worked hard and kept your nose clean, you could, it would be the path to success. Not today. It's what you can get away with. Even in the Christian body, we have so focused on grace that we've abandoned any practical call to obedience and holiness. It's astonishing, it's astonishing to observe the lack of ethics. We're not talking about morality here, just plain straightforward keeping your promises. Keeping your promises in business and otherwise. See, our conduct is to be our primary form of witness of what God has done in our lives. He didn't say witness. He said, be a witness. And uh, we seem to... Anyway, continuing. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And there's a rule for fathers. We're to imitate him who is our father God. The term here in Colossians could be translated parents, as it is in Hebrews 11:23, the same word. And Paul made it very clear that parents must make it easy as possible for children to obey. Well, children here can drop that down to throw it up to them later. Okay, that's fine. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. This is a heavier verse than you may realize on the face of it. But first of all, that's pretty straightforward. It sounds like we're continuing the same thought. Not exactly. There's a distinct difference between a Christian employee and a nominal employee. Before the law, there's two kinds of things, what they call an arm's length relationship or a fiduciary relationship. If you are an employee of a, of a firm, you owe that firm 60 minutes for every hour paid. No problem. But when 5 o'clock comes or whatever, you go home, your obligations end until the following morning, is the concept. And that's straightforward. In, unless you are a manager or a director and that you have a different relationship I'll come to. The disturbing thing here is what the Scripture is saying, servants or employees, if you will, obey in all things your masters or your employers according to the flesh, not with eye service, not just when they're watching as men-pleasers, but in the singleness of heart. Now, when you analyze that phrase, what this is a call to is a fiduciary relationship. If you are just even a nominal employee, you are God's witness there. 
and you turn out under the Lord, now, maybe not under the law of your employments here, but in, in, in the spirit of the, the text, is to be, have a fiduciary relationship. The word fiduciary is a term that's not commonly used in, in the general public, but you need to understand it. And, uh, but incidentally, just as another thing, the peasants in the feudal societies owed their landowners about 25% of their produce, but you and I owe us at least 60% more. It's a very different structure. We think of slavery as something in the past. Not really, because back then it was $1.04, and, and now it's 60 cents every dollar or more, depending on your situation here. So you have to work until August before you have anything for yourself. You know, so. But anyway, this applies to bondmen. How much more are those that have a measure of freedom in employment? This is the idioms here are of the economy of that day, which was the master-slave idea. But it's really not, it's ap totally applicable, if you will, to our particular economic structure. The singleness of heart thing I want to focus on, though, because that's honest dedication. We owe, as Christians, fiduciary responsibilities to our employers, as if it was the Lord himself. And that has profound implications. We'll get into here. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Now, this first verse of chapter 4 concludes chapter 3, if you will, but I bring it in here because chapter 4, we, from verse 2 on, has it is in a different segment. But anyway, I get into the duties here, and I want to talk a little bit about fiduciary responsibilities. Basic vocabulary. What does the word faithful mean? 1 Corinthians 4.2 Moreover, it is required in stewards, that's us, that a man be found faithful. Faithfulness is a requirement, taken for granted. Firmly adhering to duty is what it means, of true fidelity, loyal, true to allegiance, constant in the performance of duties or services, true to one's word, honest, loyal. That's what the word faithful means. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be loyal. It's astonishing to really examine our society and realize how many ways we uh, contrive to be disloyal. And I could get into a whole thing on gossip here. The most painful fin most, what is the most painful sin? It's not murder. I suggest to you it's gossip. And do a study in the scripture about gossip. It's a, a, a form of betrayal. But the word fiduciary, I want to talk about this a little bit. It's, the re, it's defined as the relation existing when one person justifiably reposes confidence, faith, and reliance in another whose aid, advice, or protection is sought in some manner. That's out of a law dictionary, okay? The relation existing when good conscience requires one to act at all times for the sole benefit and interest of another with loyalty to those interests. That's what the word fiduciary means. That's the doctor and a patient or a solicitor and his client and so forth, a fiduciary relationship. The relation by law existing between certain classes of persons, such as confidential advisors and one advised, ex executors or administrators and legatees or, or heirs, corporate directors or officers. If you're a manager or corporate director of a corporation, you're a fiduciary of the collective owners, not just the ones that put you in place. If 20% of the shareholders voted for you to be a director, you owe allegiance to the whole 100% of the shareholders, not just the ones that put you there. It's a very important concept in the law. I want to quote some legal statements here that I think are fundamental, at least in our country. Many forms of conduct are permissible in a workaday world for those acting at arm's length. They're forbidden to those bound by fiduciary ties. A trustee is held to something stricter than the morals of the marketplace. 
not honestly alone, but the punctilio of an honor that it most sensitive is then the standard of behavior. This is, uh, these are uh, court judgments that have handed down as precedents. As to this, there was developed a tradition that is unbending and inveterate. Uncompromising rigidity has been the attitude of the courts of equity when petitioned to undermine the rule of undivided loyalty by the disintegrating erosion of a particular exceptions. Only thus has the level of conduct for fiduciaries been kept at a, higher, a level higher than that trodden by the crowd. A director of a corporation is in the position of a fiduciary. He will not be permitted improperly to profit at the expense of his corporation. Undivided loyalty will ever be insisted upon. Personal gain will be denied to a director when it becomes, because he has taken a position adverse to or in conflict with the best interests of the corporation. The fiduciary relationship imposes a duty to act in accordance with the highest standards, which a man of the finest sense of honor might impose upon himself. I served on 12 boards over a period of 30 years, and only in one case in that era was a, 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 an officer or director removed for breach of fiduciary duty. When I got into the Christian world and served on a number of boards, in just a 10-year period, we had to do it three times. I was, it took me a long time to get used to the reality that it was a much less ethical, uh, orderly environment. Part of that's due to just lack of training. Uh, misguided good intentions are not an excuse. While there's a lofty moral ideal implicit in this rule, it actually accomplishes a practical bene beneficent purpose, according to Judge Shintag. It recognizes the frailty of human nature. It realizes that where a man's immediate fortunes are concerned, he may sometimes be subject to a blindness, often intuitive and compulsive. This rule is designed, on the one hand, to prevent clouded conception of fidelity and a moral indifference that blurs the vision, and on the other hand, to stimulate the most luminous and critical sense and the finest exercise of judgment, uncontaminated by the dross of prejudice, of divided allegiance, or of self-interest. That lays it out, I hope, I think. Okay. When you ask some of the questions that come up in these kinds of things, it, speaking of the early church especially, why didn't the church of that day openly oppose slavery and seek to destroy it? You know, you could argue the early church was all focused on getting saved, but did they do anything about the social conditions of the time? For one thing, the church was a minority group and had no political power in the, in the, under that economy, of course, to change an institution that was built into the social order. Paul was careful to instruct Christian slaves to secure their freedom if they could, but he did not advocate rebellion or the overthrow of the existing order. That's an important thing to understand. There is a concept throughout the, the law, the, the Torah, and it's also echoed in the Proverbs, remove not the ancient landmark. When you and I read the Old Testament, we think, well, that has to do with property rights or boundaries. The rabbis will tell you, no, it's idiomatic much broader than that. They have a great distrust of altering the traditional way of doing things. And some of that is, is, is uh, very fundamental. Proverbs 24, 21. I wish we had posted this during our elections in 2008. Because Proverbs 24, 21 says, Meddle not with them that are given to change. 
Because change is maybe exactly what you get, not the kind you think you're going to get. Something should be noted. The purpose of the early church was to spread the gospel and win souls, not to get involved in social action. That doesn't prohibit getting involved in social action, but it's an argument to remember what your priorities are. And winning souls is what the church is called for. Had the first Christians be branded as an anti-government sect, they would have been greatly hindered in their soul winning and their church expansion. And we may be moving into an era like that uh, in our country forthcoming. And while it's good for, and right for Christians to get involved in the promotion of honesty and morality in government and society, this concern must never replace the mandate to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That seems straightforward enough. It's important to get our priorities in order. Let's continue here, wrapping up Colossians chapter 3 and some other issues. This is the verse that wraps it all up. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So when you talk about employment, who's your real supervisor? Your real supervisor never sleeps or slumbers. That's who you're really working for. As to the Lord, your heavenly supervisor loves you so much he can't take his eyes off you. I love that phrase. <laughs> Knowing that of the Lord he shall receive the reward of inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. And this is the spot within which speaks of the reward of inheritance. And uh, this deserves, uh, it's my uh, uh, belief that most churches don't teach anything about rewards or inheritance. They, everybody is worried about, can you lose your salvation? As we pointed out in our earlier sessions, that if you can lose your salvation, I've got a new name for God, Butterfingers. Because your salvation was done by and is preserved by the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit uh, very clearly as you study that issue. But if that's the case, what can you, if you can't lose your Salvation, what can you lose? Yes, there's much you can lose. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.